Hi, and welcome to CauseCast. I'm your host, Matthew Passy. Here at CauseCast, we have one simple mission, to highlight the amazing folks who are using podcasts as a way to raise awareness for good causes. Whether that's a nonprofit they work with, a charity they support, a social justice campaign they're championing for, a medical condition they're battling, or someone who is just looking to make a positive impact on their local community, state, country, or the world. These are podcasters with a positive mission. Along with raising awareness for our guests' favorite causes, we're also going to see if we can raise some money to support their efforts. So make sure you check out the show notes for each episode at causecasts.org to learn more about what they're doing and how to help them achieve their goals. We are delighted here to be chatting with Judith Rugist of the Get Empowered podcast. They strive to achieve story and equity and narrative justice as a central component to the work on social justice and the needed investment accordingly. Judith, thank you so much for joining us here on CauseCasts. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be on your show, Matthew. I am delighted to be here today. So in your own words, tell me a little bit how you use your podcast to improve our world, create social change. How are you using this for your cause? Well, let me sort of give you a little brief context and background how I got into not only podcasting, but the role of story as a mean of proximity for change. So I was born in Haiti. I grew up in New Jersey, did junior high, high school, graduate schools in the U.S. After graduate school, I started working internationally across Asia, Africa, Latin America, the Caribbean. I worked in a great deal of post-conflict conflict countries on issues of economic development, human rights, women's survivals of war. I also work with men on issues of leadership. So growing up in the U.S. in the early 80s was a very strange time because HIV AIDS became part of the national discourse and globally this health crisis was centrally linked to Haiti. And as a young Haitian, there was this idea that if you were Haitian, you therefore had AIDS. And it was my first exposure around how narrative and the belief, how a story about a thing is then linked to a group of people because Others do not know enough about that population. So imagine, for example, if all we knew about the U.S. was what happened in Ferguson. The global population would not have any understanding that New York exists or San Francisco exists. They, if only if you, you have one story about a place or population, you're limited in understanding of where and what exists in that place. And that first exposure, one way or another, took me around the world. I begin to see that same consistency, how narratives in frame, when it's kind of one-dimensional, does not allow the people whose stories that the one-dimensional story is about to be understood. And the person who actually, like, say you, if you have a story, if you believe one story about me, it limits your imagination about what you know about me because you don't know the full story and it limits how we engage with each other. So I got into podcasting because I had been looking for a way to connect people to the range of stories that exist around the world that is not just one, the one dimensional story that is told, particularly for groups and populations that are impacted by inequities, whether it's poverty or gender or race or economic. You know, this was the journey. And so to the extent that when we think about a problem, we think about the narrative of the problem as a central part to solving the problem. I tackle issues and looking at the role of stories, the role of narrative and the frame 
around these stories, how they can be a mean for transformation. So you think about it in a way to sort of say that the stories and the belief you have has shaped in terms of where you are today and what's possible for you. But it's also shaped what is possible for you in your relationship with others. And so for me, podcasting as a coming from an oral tradition was a great tool to be used to begin my movement, to begin to contribute what I believe is the next frontier of social change. So that in brief is my answer to your question. And I hope I've been sort of clear in terms of why I got into podcasting and, and what I'm hoping to achieve with it. Yeah, very clear and fascinating story that you have there. I definitely want to come back to that, but I want to just dive a little bit deeper into the podcasting. So what was it about this medium that you thought would be the most effective tool for accomplishing your goals? Well, I think the fact that it's audio. I touched briefly on the fact that I'm from an oral tradition. I think audio has a way of expanding our imagination. And it also has a way, if you can't read and write, you can still understand. I think for me, audio is a tool that can connect people on so many levels that while I think videos have a way of making changes, I think audio for me is that tool. But also the cost to production of podcasting compared to videos and writing is completely different. And the exposure and the expansion of audio offers a great deal more than I think other tools. This isn't to say other tools are not useful. And I think when using complement with video and other ways, you can be even more effective. Personally, for me, it was the fact that I could tap into the groups and populations of people I wanted to tap into without having to do the interpretation, without having to speak for them and to write or like, you know, it's a different, the power of audio cannot be underestimated for me. And I think it has largely the fact to do with the fact that I'm from an oral tradition and the fact that orally, I think we connect in ways that we connect deeper to people when we can hear their voices, uh, we can bond with them. That's so interesting that it's not just that it's a useful platform, that it's got obvious benefits in terms of production and ease and cost, but the fact that it goes back to your tradition, I think is so fascinating and, and so beautiful. Do you also find that when you're speaking to people, potentially other experts in the field, or possibly when you're talking to folks that are impacted by these social issues, that they're just a little bit more open to audio versus possibly having a, a camera shoved in their face? Yeah, I mean, you know, even that for me personally, to be honest with you, I think I find it personally doing podcasting, I'm able to be fully myself because there's no camera in front of me, there's no act. It's like you get deep into yourself when you actually have to speak. You don't have the gaze of the camera or the cameraman. When I speak to people, the fact that, you know, they get to be in their own comfort zone. So the comfort zone is deep. So they get to articulate what they are really feeling and want to articulate. Without the additional elements, you know, the microphone, you can get over that quickly. But when you have to deal with lighting, when you have to deal with videos and the cameraman behind the videos, I find that my guests, uh, once they get over the fact that they are being recorded and they can get into the conversation, they find it to be therapeutic. Because we all love to talk, right? We don't mind being recorded if that being recorded is not a visible it's not that gaze, right? I think when you're in front of the camera, that gaze of the camera can really create a certain level of discomfort 
if you are not trained for it. And I think audio for me in the context of my work is an extremely powerful tool to get people into the comfort of who they are so they can express the deep desire and the vision and dream they have for themselves. I think it's also fascinating what you pointed out that we always talk about podcasting being such an intimate medium. We typically consume this content on our own, driving in headphones, things of that nature. And so to produce that content with just you and whoever it is you're talking to, it's a much more intimate experience than, like you said, having a whole production crew, or even if it's just another a camera person, just that third person sort of could take away the intimacy of the conversation and, and maybe keep people from really opening up about what it is you want to discuss with them. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I say being in conversation. So I think there are three ways people create intimacy. Obviously, you know, we talk the sexual intimacy is one form. Laughing with someone is another form of intimacy, but being in conversation with them is a third level of intimacy that allows. And when that can be done without intrusion, it creates not only a deeper understanding, but for the person that gets to listen later on in the conversation, it helps you to connect to them to a deeper sense of who they are. And I think for me, like I'm, I am such a fan of audio and podcasting. I don't think there is any way to describe like what I think is the power of audio and podcasting. And again, it quite possibly has to do with the fact that I'm from an oral tradition and I'm from people who stories have been transferred orally. So I, the opportunity to actually capture that through podcasting is a great historical tool. And I'm hoping that the community will build the platform and the technology so we can store these things so that historically we can go back to them in a way that we go back to history book and journals. Wow. That's my hope. It'd be a nice thing for us to accomplish. So I want to go back a little bit to, you know, what you try to accomplish. And I, I think it's so interesting, especially in the world that we're living in today, where we have access to so much information. We have access to so much data, to so many people telling real life stories about who they are, what their community is like, what their country is like. And yet we still, so many of us, and I'm sure I'm guilty of this, whether it's a conscious thing or an unconscious thing, but we do create these perceptions of people and places. And so I want to go back. How do we get folks who aren't already open-minded, who aren't already informed to learn more. You started by talking about Haiti and the perception that we have of Haiti. How do we get people to want to listen to the real stories of the people of Haiti and change our perception of, of what that country is like? You know, I think there's two levels to it, right? Because I think what's popular, we assume what's popular is what's right. And we assume what's popular is what we should listen to. Very few of us have the time to actually go outside what's the dominant discourse. I see myself growing up, having an most of my education in the U.S., I had to go outside the mainstream education system to get a full understanding of non-American European history, right? And so the question becomes, what world are you wanting to create? What world do you want for yourself and for your children? What is it do you want to understand? What is your commitment to the world as a citizen, but as a citizen in a bigger world, right? Outside yourself and your respective tribe, what is it that would make you be more, what would make you better as a citizen, right? 
And so what what is your commitment to understand things outside of your respective community? Now, I'm biased because I'm a third culture citizen. And so I haven't had the luxury since the age of 12 to live in an environment where I'm the dominant person, if, even if I'm the dominant in race or gender. Culturally, I bring in a completely different perspective. So I'm always appropriating the other's perspective because that's been my it's almost like my frame of existence. It's kind of like how I move into the world. If I step into a place, I see myself as like, I need to understand where I am. And so I think a big part, the kind of work that you are doing is an example. We're comfortable where we are, right? And so who has the mic? One of the biggest things that I am working on is to demystify the whole idea of needing to be the voice for the voiceless. There is no such thing as the voiceless. And so the moment you may find yourself wanting to be an interpreter for someone, ask yourself, is that what the situation calling for, right? And so I think there is this need for us to think that all there is is what we have and what we know. What if we started to think that what I know, what if, what if there was a different perspective or a different set of experience from my experience? How responsibility or how exciting would it be for me to go on a journey to understand a different set of experience? And I think that for me is a question that can get you to how do I get to know about if I hear that says, you know, right now, hot on topic in the U.S. is immigration, right? Mm -hmm. Immigrants are illegals. They are animals. They are criminals. Is that really true? Is that really true? Right? When you hear things like that. All of us have to stop and sort of say, what does that mean, right? Even when you believe in it, I want you to stop to think about what it means and take a step back and consider, is there a different experience to my understanding? And could I go take a minute to understand that different experience? And we're living in a time with technology and social media. So much is available for us to do that. But yet... We can't get out of outside of our comfort zone. And I get it, right? Even when we want something, we don't want to leave our comfort zone. So I think the biggest challenge of our time as citizens living in the world is to get out of our comfort zone. And that comfort zone is really one of seeking to understand the experience of others. That would be my one recommendation. How do we step out of our comfort zone just to get a sense and understanding of other people's experience in our world, other people different from ourselves. It's funny you bring that up. I've been thinking a lot about, obviously, you know, when we're speaking, there's a lot going on with the immigration debate in this country. There's atrocities taking place. There's arguments about what to do. How do we do this compassionately? Who's at fault? But what seems to underline the narrative is this protectionism, this idea that by letting more people into your life, into this country, it can erase who you are. And I wonder as someone who has lived in so many different places, has worked in so many places, has experienced so many different cultures, is there something to be said about the fact that learning about other cultures can sometimes even strengthen or reaffirm your own culture, your own identity? Can it can it give you an appreciation of who you are and it's not something to be feared? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the beauty of learning different cultures. It makes you better in who you are. Saying that isn't to say there's anything wrong with you. And I think if you look at this current climate that you've just laid out, the challenge and the articulation is not just that 
this idea that it's going to make you different. It's been framed around the sense of you are unsafe, right? Mm. Is that being in my presence as an immigrant, as a woman, as a black woman, you are unsafe. So it's this idea that your security, like the, the sense of getting to know who I am and my experience, that my desires are no different than your desires. We both have a, take for example, we both have a love for podcasting. If we could even stay in that sense of what we both have a love for, how does that diminish who you are? But if you've been made to believe that I am somehow a criminal, that being in my presence, you therefore are insecure, or in my case, you're white male, like your privilege means that, you know, you're making things impossible for me. What if that wasn't the case? Who would we be if we didn't have these sets of belief that I am in danger to you, you are in danger to me just because of who I am. These are myths. These are things that have been created. And so I think that sense of security, the conversation, I was talking to a friend earlier who works with organization and he was sharing with me this friend who's doing some work in uh, post-conflict environment. If you look at this conversation globally, there's been a move, if you look at World War II, there was a lot of talk about peace in the world, creating a peaceful world. And we moved to a peace and security. And now we're just purely in security mode. And this idea of security is to justify that immigrants are criminals. And so all of us as average citizens, even those who are immigrants themselves, are started to make believe that these people are somehow criminals, they are illegals. And so the conversation around security, we need to reconsider what is it that is being said? What is, is this really true? Are these people criminal? Not just one person who are part of this group who happens to have committed a crime, but it is when you start criminalizing an entire population as a result of few people who may have committed a crime, right? And I think that's the danger when we're saying that if we accept immigrants and it's going to change who we are. The question is not even about changing who we are. It's a conversation about saying that these people are dangerous that these people are going to hurt you. And that hurt is not a change of your identity. It's a physical sense of security that's been kind of imposed on people. So we are living in this fear, fear of being shamed and fear of being, you know, that these people will somehow make life insecure for us. And I think this conversation around security is a bigger one than a conversation around identity. It's funny you say that because as you're talking, I'm thinking... Sure, the conversation has been framed around personal safety in terms of integration and the melting pot that this country is supposed to be. But I think that is just the low-hanging fruit that is the easy target for people to use when truthfully what it is that they are afraid of is the security of their identity. Oh, very nice. It's yeah, because like, you know, if you look at statistics, if you look at the numbers. Every population, every group, you know, dissect it however you want, male, female, Latin, Middle Eastern, American, North American, European. Like if you break down those numbers, there's a pretty constant, you know, pattern of extremism, of criminality, of fraudsters. It doesn't really change that much from group to group to group, but we love to claim that the other groups are scarier, are more nefarious than ours, possibly because we're just looking to protect our own self-interest, our own identity. And it's easy to say, 
protect your home, protect your children because MS-13 is coming. When the fact is there's probably more dangers in your community from someone who looks like you than from someone who doesn't. Well, I think it's a very powerful point you've just articulated around this security of our identity. But I think where the issues get a little bit shaky is the fact that not every identity has the privilege of power in changing the policy Mm. to sort of create this dynamic, right? I think this is where things get a little dicey in the way that while I may be concerned, like I want to live in a world where I can be a global citizen because I love to travel, I love to experience new cultures. That's kind of like my form of identity. For someone who doesn't, it may be a problem, right? But that's okay. When it becomes a problem, which is what we have now, is then we start instituting the law to sort of say the identity that you want to have is not a valid valid identity. We're going to illegalize or made illegal your identity. I mean, up until recently, you know, let's take LGBTQ as as, as an example, right? It's when we start making it illegal for us to have the identity that we have. And I think that's the danger in which we are in. It's not the sense of security of identity that, oh, I want to be a global citizen, I want to travel the world, or you want to be like a cool podcaster, you know, hipster. I'm calling your name right now, but you get the idea, right? (laughs) I wish I was cool enough to be a hipster. (laughs) You know, the idea is if we can be, you know, if these challenges of identity didn't have the legal implication as they do now, as they are being sort of pushed to, it wouldn't be so much an issue. We could work within the contacts and we could negotiate, even disagree with our different sense of identity. It's now all of a sudden that it's illegal for me to be the human that I am. And when you have the power, when the power, you know, when those who actually manage the law, when your government has made it illegal for some human to not be human, that's where I think we are. That's the danger and that's the anxiety. That's the stress. That's the national stress that we are feeling. It's a global stress in some ways, right? And I think the U.S. have always stood to be the example of what is possible for a nation and society to actually commingle different set of ethnic identity. And because it had a law that sort of like built was, you know, even slavery, the end of slavery was we were able to use the constitution that says all men, the woman wasn't in there, but let's just say all people were created equal, right? Mm -hmm. And you do not have a nation in history quite in the way I think the U.S. has kind of like dealt with the experiment of human coexisting in the way that we've had. We're starting to lose some of that, but I think the hope and the vision and dream of what the U.S. as a nation is, is something worth fighting because you don't have another nation that's kind of experimented in the mix of coexisting of different set of identities in the way the U.S. has made success out of it. I'm not saying it's perfect. I've lived in enough places as a black woman to tell you that identity politics exists everywhere. But I think we have safeguarded some kind of legal framework or at least an illusion that we could sort of come into spaces or had a story and narrative that it was possible that we all, it's a nation of immigrants and that, you know, this space is all of us, right? Now when that's being changed, and I think that's the danger around what you brilliantly describe as the security of identity. And I think this space was a place where we had this, whether you call it illusion or whatever you want to call it, there was this core belief that we were secure in our identity. 
But we didn't have a law to now dictate that my humanity was no longer legal, but your humanity is legal or vice versa. And I think that that's the place that's dangerous for us to be in. And I think this is where stories and the power of stories and human connection and human understanding and the ability to actually use story as a frame of proximity for us to understand the set of human experiences and the set of values that we share can be powerful. And in some way, why I'm excited about the growth and expansion of podcasting as a tool to actually get the kind of stories about people in communities where we can all share together in the common experience of what it means to be human so that my humanity is no less or no more legal than your humanity. Obviously, I'm quite a philosopher and I'm... (laughs) This may sound philosophical, but that's our existence, right? That's what we all want. We all want to live in that world, whether what I'm saying may be too philosophical, but I think that's where we exist. We exist in that space where we want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be recognized. We want to exist because, you know, we want to breathe that air that says, you know what, that oxygen, you are deserving as much as I am deserving of that oxygen. How can we create a space where we can all enjoy it? And I think on top of that, and what's outlined in your podcast is everybody wants to feel empowered to be able to make these changes. Yes. And to, so with the Get yes. Empowered podcast, what is it that you want someone who checks it out, listen to, you know, what is it that you want them to take away from it? Or what is it that you want them to do next upon listening? Well, I think two levels for me. One is, you know, I want to create a space where I'm from an environment where too much about the work in social, uh, the social sector is about people from the outside coming in to basically like save the poor, save, you know, there's always an external uh, protagonist. My mission that we are the protagonists of our own stories, that we are the change maker in our own lives and our communities, and that that can be done in different ways. And so I feature people who are working on issues that's relevant to them in their communities. Like let's say, for example, I love to have conversation about racism where white people are working with white people on racism because you can't, you know, black people can't be, we can't do enough to actually end racism. The problem don't exist purely on the end of black people needing to actually behave better, show up differently, dress differently, sound differently. Like we can't be enough to end racism. So I love to have conversation where I identify white people who understand what racism in the context of their communities and are working to transform those uh, issues. Same thing when it comes to men. You can't empower enough women to end violence against women. The work that needs to be done with toxic masculinity, focusing on men who are working with other men who themselves have been victim of violence. You know, a man who perpetuates violence is a man who've experienced violence himself. And how can we begin the healing at the source so that we can actually heal society at large? And so I'm really committed to these kind of stories so that we can all begin to see ourselves, not just as like, if I'm a man, I want to be a benevolent patriarch by being an ally for women's rights. How can I start to actually be an active bystander when these things are happening in my space? I stand up and make changes. How can I begin to do that? If we each in our own respective spaces begin to stand up for integrity, what's right, and to begin to sort of create that world we want to live in in a way that is one of dignity, respect for people, I think we can begin to make shifts. Change doesn't just 
happen. Things don't just get better. People make them better. And I think each one of us in our respective communities have the power to actually make that difference. The other piece for me is, you know, I believe kindness is a is an ingredient that we all need in our lives. And so I love this idea I want to explode. One question I ask all of my guests at the end of the show is like, how do you practice kindness to yourself? Because I think that reflects ways that we can extend kindness to the world, right? And so wherever you are, wherever you are, what are the simple things you do to engage in the world and the way you treat yourself? These are usually people who are activists or really ambitious people working to some kind of change, whether they're running a business that's profitable, but that business is about a change in their communities, right? And so I, I want to engage with people to think about what does practicing kindness means to, to us when we're actually seeking to change in the world. So we want change because we want a world that's a little kinder. And when I say kind, it's a soft word, but it's actually a very powerful word. If you can find the space to be kind to yourself, I think you show up with greater uh, awareness and we are more mindful of yourself and the world around you. So this is something I want to create some kind of a little bit of list of like top 10 response I've gotten from people. People talk about, you know, play, being playful, laughter, for example, drinking champagne as a way to create kindness. Uh, luxury, getting a moment of luxury as a way to create kindness, to sort of like connect these things. There's no contradiction between being doing good in the world and doing good to yourself. Because too many social activists, and I was one of them, who just felt that we should we needed to go on and do and do, but didn't really care for ourselves. And so for me, uh, I want to sort of support a movement where we can create greater kindness in the world. So that's that. That yeah, those are the two things. I absolutely love that response. And I, I think sometimes kindness to some folks, and this probably goes back to the idea of toxic masculinity, but I think to some folks, kindness feels a little too frou-frou. And so maybe just to rephrase that with empathy, it's the world much mm. better place. We would all be smarter. We would all be more enlightened if we could just practice empathy. I, I've even heard in business, you would just be more successful if you could empathize with whether it's your clients, your customers, your partners, your bosses. I mean, just to have a, just to take a moment to try to understand each other. I agree. This has been a delightful conversation. We want to help Judith empower more people to create a more inclusive a better narrative around what we can do for others, but more importantly, what we can do for ourselves and our own communities to make this world a better place. And so there'll be a link in the show notes of this episode and we'll have one on the website, but there'll be a donation link to give directly to Inclusivists so that you can, if you think that this is a noble cause and it sounds like an incredibly noble one, you can make a donation directly. You can support the work that Judith is doing and we can go out there and make this world a better place. Judith, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me here on CauseCast and just wish you the best of luck and, and continued success with what you're doing. Matthew, thank you. It's been a pleasure being on your show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of CauseCast. Again, if you've been inspired by the work of our guest, please check out the show notes in your podcast app or head to causecast.org. There you will find links to the work of our guest and a special donation link set up to support their favorite cause. 
All the proceeds are going directly to that cause, minus any administration fee on the platform that they set up. None of the money is coming here to the CauseCast production. Also, while you're at CauseCast.org, make sure you follow and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you enjoy your podcast show. And follow us on social media as we'll try to provide updates with what's going on with our guests and some other folks who will be featuring on the show and any other efforts that we have to support the community of cause casters that are out there now there's also going to be a special facebook group dedicated to cause casters so if you already have a podcast for a cause or you're thinking about launching one join the group it'll be dedicated to providing resources and answering questions specifically for cause casters hopefully we can do things like arrange some special non-profit pricing of various podcast services to help you with your venture and you know keep you under budget because we know a lot of people doing cause casts are not going to be reaping in the the money so we want to see what we can do to help you produce a high quality product get your story out there get people inspired and not break the bank lastly if you are a cause caster and want to join me here on the show for an interview please head to causecast.org and fill out the interview request form we'll take a quick look at it and if approved we'll schedule you for chat and show the amazing work you're doing with cause raise some awareness for what you're doing and ideally raise some money as well thank you so much again for staying with me and we will see you next time on cause casts 